Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. We didn't publish a new episode last week, so the last time I actually spoke to you guys was about the Melissa Benoit case in Kingston, Massachusetts. And we got a hell of a response to that case. I knew we would. It was going to pull on a lot of heartstrings. It's just something that should never have happened. It totally devastated the Benoit family, naturally. They've never been the same. But Kingston has also never been the same over that. And, man, it's just a horrible case. And the guy who did that, Meinholz, Henry Meinholz, he naturally received a life sentence without parole, but he only ended up serving 10 years before he died. And as I had discussed in the episode, there's people in law enforcement in Kingston and on the South Shore who believe that Meinholz may have been responsible for more horror, really. They don't know if he's killed anybody, but there had been some reports, you know, naturally during the years of, you know, creepy old men doing creepy old men's stuff. And I think that was a buildup for Henry Meinholz. He'd do that. He'd drive around and touch himself inappropriately. And at one point he said in 1980, he had raped a girl at knife point. But I don't know if I believe the timeline there, because you see it's conveniently outside the statute of limitations, right? That would have given him, what, 10 years. And if it's not a homicide, statute of limitation dissolves in seven years in criminal cases, right? So he's basically admitting to something that he couldn't be prosecuted for. But I think he was a whole bunch of crazy. And did he contain his craziness to that purported rape in 1980? And then what he did to Melissa Benoit, two episodes in what, a decade? Is that how those guys operate typically? I don't think it is. So I also wanted to thank everybody on the emails I got on that case. I guess it came across in the podcast that I had a bit of a difficult time with that one. And I do because I remember it playing out on the news in front of me. And that poor girl who did nothing but leave her dad's grave. And that was new information to me. I didn't know that at the time. I don't remember if the news ever portrayed her as leaving the cemetery and trying to get home. Then she runs into Meinholz. But man. What a tough case. But all right, guys, we're on to the next one. And we definitely have to go back into the Wayback Machine. What is it? 39 years, coming up on 40 years now. This is the case of Judy Chartier, who lived in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. But the crime actually happened in neighboring Billerica, Mass. Now, when I ask you guys to send in recommendations for stories and whatnot, I've gotten this one several times, and I had looked into it, but one of the reasons I didn't do the podcast on it was there just wasn't much to sink your teeth into. It was, boom, 
into the ether with her car missing. I'm going to tell you the whole story. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, right? But her car went missing as well. So there was a lot of people who said maybe she just skedaddled out of town. Her family was adamant. She certainly did not. And I don't think the police thought that either. But there was so little information. And again, guys, we come across this thing in old cases, in cold cases, where the police refuse to release any information, anything at all on anniversaries or anything like that. They'll put something up on Facebook and all this, but you need to release new information. This protocol of keeping all the information to yourself when a case goes cold gives you this case of Judy Cartier that is 40 years old. I'm sorry. And time and time again, Jesus de la Cruz, same thing. Molly Bish, Holly Peranian, same types of things. When are you going to get out of that protocol? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I understand we're Monday morning quarterbacks. I'm a Monday morning quarterback here. And I'm criticizing the guys who are in the arena. I don't like to do that. The guys who are investigating it have a job to do. I'm talking about the higher ups. I'm talking in police academics at the police academies. They have to teach this a different way. They have to teach cold cases a different way. They're just stacking up like bodies in a morgue. Figure out something new to do with them. Figure out what works in the age of the internet, in the age of social media. Get with the goddamn program. One of the problems in the way that police courses are taught in police academies nationwide is just here in Massachusetts, we probably have over 400 police departments, right? And it's not like that in other countries. They'll have some local police, but they'll have an overriding national police force. So for any change to take place in policing takes way too long. It's just agonizingly slow. And no, I'm not talking about changing to a nationalized, one nationalized police force. I don't want that. But I do think that when a case goes from an active investigation into a cold case phase, there has to be protocols and you have to merge that with social media awareness, with media awareness, right? The media uses the police and beats on the police with a stick on a daily basis. Get something back for that horror, right? Get something back from these guys who know everything. Have them do half of your job for you guys. Use the media, use social media, use websites, whatever it takes. There just doesn't seem to be any urgency to change how we handle cold cases. And man, it's crazy. All right, guys, grab your hat. We got to head into the Wayback Machine. It's 1982. And we're in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. Let me tell you a little bit about Chelmsford. Chelmsford is just, I guess, southwest of Lowell, Massachusetts. And it was the third largest city in Massachusetts, I think. A lot of residents of Chelmsford work at the University of Massachusetts in Lowell. That's a pretty big employer. They have several other large employers in Lowell as well. So Chelmsford actually... At least one portion, the neighboring portion, the bordering portion, is kind of a suburb of Lowell, Massachusetts. And it was definitely that way in 1982. And it was kind of rural. You're actually closer to New Hampshire 
then you are to Boston. It's probably about a 45-minute drive to Boston and probably a 20-minute commute to Nashua, New Hampshire. So you had people heading out to work in several different directions in Chelmsford. Physically, Chelmsford is a beautiful area, very wooded, beautiful homes. And it was a little more low-key in Chelmsford than it is now. It was more of a small-town feel in 1982 than it is in 2022. I think there's about 35,000 residents in Chelmsford. And I think it was probably about 28,000, 29,000 back in 1982. It's definitely grown. And today, Chelmsford, there's beautiful restaurants, malls, and all this other stuff. In 1982, not so much. I think if you wanted to go out to a decent dinner from Chelmsford, Lowell would probably be the first choice, then Nashua, Boston, etc. Wasn't a lot happening in Chelmsford in the 80s, I can tell you that. But what it was was an excellent place to raise a family, safe, probably as safe as you can get in Massachusetts. So I don't know. And the Chartier family, they were a large family. Bill Chartier was the dad and Judy Chartier was mom. And I believe Judy stayed home for a while. They had a large family. She probably would have done less work going to a job than staying home with all those kids. But that's how it was back then. And they were part of the community. The Chartiers went to public school. And Judy was an excellent student, excellent kid around town. In 1982, she was 17 years old. She was stunning, dark hair, beauty, dark eyes, just a really beautiful girl. She excelled in school and she had this thing with animals, people say. During my research, I've seen it more than once. Like, I guess squirrels would just come right up to the kid and like eat out of her hand, bunnies, those type of things. So people thought Judy was going to have some career or some more intense interest in animals going forward. But she was a happy-go-lucky kid and she had a car that she really loved. Judy had a 1972, I believe it was, Dodge Dart. And it wasn't just the Dodge Dart, guys, if you remember this car. It was the Dodge Dart Swinger version, which I think had a cloth top. The car's like looking back, just really pieces of junk. But she loved this car. And you know how you are with your first car and stuff like that. She'd drive her friends around. They'd roll down the windows in the spring, summertime. And they'd rock out, you know, I guess she liked hardcore rock and roll. So she'd blast the music. She'd have four friends in the car. And you're a teenager. You have some freedom. Your whole life's in front of you. and You don't have a goddamn care in the world. I remember those days. And I think Judy Chartier's friends also remember those days. Unfortunately, they're in the past. Now, let me take you up to the day of the disappearance. This was Saturday, June 5th, 1982. Now, I know I had mentioned that Judy was from a large family. I don't think I told you how large it was. She was one of seven kids. I'm one of five, so I know what life is like in a large family. And Judy was also close with one of her cousins, really best friends. And Judy was scheduled to go to a party in nearby Bill Ricker in the evening. The cousin couldn't go with her, but 
they had kind of spitballed the idea that Judy goes to the party, after the party, come back to the cousin's house, and they'll have a sleepover and all that. So that was kind of up in the air, but Judy was definitely going to the party. And the person she was going to the party with was her at least semi-long-term boyfriend. And his name is Roger Balcom. And I believe he went to school with Judy, and they had been dating for a while and friends for longer than that. Judy was a beautiful girl, so she always had guys approaching her, even if the boyfriend's present. You know how that happens when you're in the presence of a beautiful woman. But these two go to the party. There's about 50 or 60 people at this party at a private residence in Bill Ricker. And Judy knew everybody there. I'm not sure if Roger did, but something happens where an older guy or a few older guys begin to talk to Judy. Judy was 17 and was a little bit older. I don't know by how much. She was a little bit older than her boyfriend, Roger. And at a certain point, she leaves with one of those older guys and gives him a ride. I don't know if it's a ride around the neighborhood, a ride to the liquor store. I don't know what happened there. And also, that's something that's omitted from the details I see in the media. I hope the police know who this was and all that. So they get back, and the boyfriend, Roger, thinks these two are actually flirting. And Roger and Judy get into a beef. And they leave the party at around 2 a.m. So, again, one of the other things I didn't come up with in my research was how drunk were these two kids? Was Judy drinking, smoking grass, whatever, right? Whatever kids do at parties. Let's not be naive here. But it's 2 a.m. on a Saturday night. And are we supposed to believe that these two kids left this party sober? Because I don't. So... Roger says they get into an argument, and at a certain point, she drops him off at her house. And they had like a system. Whenever they went out, she'd drop him off at the house and come home, and it would be like a signal. She'd ring the home phone twice and hang up as not to really wake up the rest of the home. So that would be the signal that Judy was home safe. Now, Roger watched... Judy drive to the end of the street and make a left-hand turn back to her own house. And he thought, okay, well, that's step one. He never gets that call from Judy that she was home. Roger went to sleep without getting that phone call. Typically, he'd call the house after that, but he just went to bed on this night. So Roger did see Judy take the left towards her house. That's the way she'd go home. But mom was interviewed later, and I saw her on a Channel 25 Bob Ward special, and I'm going to put that in the show notes. It's kind of crucial in this case. Judy's car, the Dodge Dart, had a problem with the muffler, and it was summertime. The windows were open, so Judy Chadia's mom, who's also named Judy, said, you know, she was in bed, but she was waiting to hear that muffler pull into the neighborhood and into the driveway. That never occurred. So the parents don't know she's missing. They assume she's sleeping over the cousin's house. They really don't know. 
They're not super worried. But at about 7 a.m., there's knocking at the door, and there's two guys that are there, and one of them has nunchucks, the Chinese fighting sticks. I'm sure everybody's familiar with them. And this goofball swinging them around, but this duo say, we miss Judy. Like, what are you talking about? You miss Judy. She was just here. Like, how could you have an opportunity to miss Judy, right? And they're acting very weird. The guy with the nunchucks is hitting trees. They just seem agitated, right? It's the most insane portion of this case. So pay close attention to it, especially when you're reviewing the Bob Ward special that I'll have up on the show notes. But the parents don't know Judy's missing, and they just think these kids had been drinking all night and are crazy. But one of the brothers comes, and he knows one of these guys. And one of the guys had been infatuated with Judy and had asked her out like a year before, but she was dating this Roger Balcom and said no. It's unknown if these two were at the party with Roger and Judy, okay? But when I'm watching this, there's a lot of questions. This portion of Bob Ward's special, to me, raises more questions than it gives answers. So... At a certain point, Bob Ward says in this that when he told the police there was somebody at the door, and this interview was taken in Maine, I don't know, 15 years after the murder, something like that. So Bob Ward says the police are very interested, are now very interested in these two people. To me, I listened to wording very closely. Did the police not know about those two people previously? Isn't that the first thing a father would tell the police? We had two nutcases here swinging nunchucks all over the place. Man, it's just an odd segment. Judy hadn't even been reported missing yet. If these two guys did that, aren't they the laser focus of your investigation? All right, we'll return to that. So... Nobody really knows where Judy went after she made the left towards her house. It is thought, there's at least one theory, that Judy went back to that party. And it's said in all the research I've come up with that there was 50 to 60 people there, good friends of Judy, you know. She was a popular kid. Roger was too, so they knew everybody. Roger wasn't there. So I think what they're trying to say is Judy took one of these older kids for a ride during the party and Roger gets upset about it and she gets rid of him by dropping him off. He's a little bit younger and Judy did seem to have some attraction to at least one of these older guys. So the thought process is she gets rid of the boyfriend and goes back to the party. Nobody at the party will admit to that fact. People are pretty closed mouth about this. These are all friends, and I don't understand why. It's almost 40 years now. So nobody has ever said, yeah, Judy came back to the party and had a few more drinks. And don't forget, there's no cell phones, text messaging, and all that. So they couldn't have planned to meet up via text or call or anything like that. Judy would have had to go back to the party. And in the Bob Ward special... The dad says, one of my older boys was in Bill Ricker, 
and he is almost certain that he saw Judy's car, because again, it has no muffler, going back towards the party. He was at a convenience store in Bill Ricker, and this must have been obviously after 2 a.m. So the brother doesn't think anything about it because Judy's not missing yet. And if she was going back to the party, that would have been fine with him, you know? So this is where Judy just disappears into the ether. Nobody really knows. The boyfriend, Roger's at the house. Mom and dad are home. There's other kids in the house. So we've placed several potential, I don't want to say suspects, persons of interest, right? In any disappearance, in any homicide, you start in the inner circle and work out. Roger was home. Mom and dad were home. And then you got that thing at 7 a.m. with these two nutcases knocking at the door. I don't know what I would have done at that point, right? That would have been a telephone call to the police. And quite frankly, that might have been baseball bat time for me. You understand? Mr. Chartier is a nice guy. He's kind of reserved, a small guy. But I would have amped up my suspicions. Where's my daughter? right now. And what are you doing here? I think there may have been fisticuffs if I was involved there. And again, in that special, it seems as though the police weren't alerted to these two guys. I may be wrong, but watch that special and see if you come away with that. Because again, Bob Wood says after he does his special, the Chelmsford police say we're very interested in those two people. And it kind of made me feel like it's the first time they're hearing of it. Man, a lot of question marks there. A lot of question marks. So that's at 7 a.m. on Sunday, June 6th. And now the Chartiers are getting worried because Judy is not at her cousin's house. I don't know at what time they start verifying these things, right? But at a certain point, they go to the police and... Judy has just disappeared into the ether. And you want to know what? So has her car. So they go to the police and the police don't suspect a runaway situation, but she's almost an adult and has a vehicle. So that kind of makes the police think that, geez, yeah, she may have just split for a day or two. Maybe she's got a new love interest. They're at the beach. I think they did lose some time here looking for Judy. And it's just a strange, strange turn of events. And I didn't know that about this case, or I would have done it earlier. So again, guys, this case is hampered by that protocol where the police simply don't release any information about anything if it's an ongoing case. It's been almost 40 years now. Did you investigate those two jamokes at the door swinging nunchucks around? It's a question mark. You can't answer that as a cop? One of those guys I had mentioned had a love interest for Judy, and that's according to the brother. I think it was a younger brother. But, man, did it take 15 years to get that information? Or were these two guys suspects all along? And, again, this protocol of not releasing any information, why don't you release those two names? If they were persons of interest, right, you can release those. Maybe that jars somebody else's memory. I haven't seen any of these names bandied around. 
it's crazy. Like, why don't you say who they were? So they do start looking for Judy, and I don't know how long it took. There's so many gaps in this case. It's just insane. There's not one thorough account. So I had to bounce all around. I've never found the names of those two guys who knocked on the door. They are known to the Chartiers, and they are known to the police. But pretty quickly, the case goes cold, and I mean dead cold. The cops go to that party and try to investigate those 50 or 60 kids, and it's one of these situations where nobody really wants to get involved. They'll admit to the fact that Judy and Roger were there at the party, but nobody will talk about what happened after they left. There was some type, not really an altercation, but Roger admits in this special for Channel 25 to being jealous, they had a bit of an argument. And that's when they left and he was dropped home. But they think, or at least it's speculated, that Judy went back to the party and maybe met up with one or two of those older guys. So you'd have to suspect that something bad happened, right? And these two guys may have done something wrong to Judy and they go to the house in an effort almost to cover their tracks. Like, geez, the cops won't suspect us if we go looking for Judy, you know? But Judy hadn't been reported missing. It's just so many question marks around those two guys. Like, if you weren't involved in her disappearance, why don't you just go home after the party? I don't get it. Another thing I don't get is why aren't you releasing those names? Because those names, right, they have brothers, sisters, friends, enemies, acquaintances who could point you in the right direction. Maybe somebody remembers something. They just have to hear the name, you know? So I see various reports on this where nobody would really talk about Judy coming back to the party. I also see another report in the Low Sun that, yes, she did go back to the party, but nobody remembers who she ultimately left with. So she would have had to return to the party just after 2 a.m. after dropping her boyfriend off. So were those two kids, those two guys that showed up at the Chartier home there? Man, that's something that needs to be answered and should be answered, and it should be answered publicly. It's insane. So the Chartiers are frantic. They search the whole area. The police end up getting a search going, and I don't know how long it took, but they claim to have searched the area around the Concord River and all this. But the case is dead cold. And it goes cold all the way up, guys, from the 80s, 1982, to 2012. In 2012, some remains were found on a property that used to be owned by the Chartier family, I think extended family. It may have been a vacation area or something like that. But those remains turned out to be animal remains after being tested. So again, still in the same boat. So again, we're back to cold case. Cops release nothing new. They don't release the names of those two people swinging nunchucks outside dad's house the day she goes missing. Absolutely insane. So fast forward now to just last year, November 2nd, 2021. This is what really piqued my interest, right? Because on the news, it's reported that they find Judy's car in the Concord River in Bill Ricker. 
and the Concord River is relatively shallow. It's murky, mud on the bottom, all that. And to be quite frank, it's a disposal spot for stolen cars, cars you don't want anymore. It's kind of polluted and filthy and all that. And that was in the 80s, right? But today people do kayak on it, use it more for recreation. I don't think it's polluted as it once was. But regardless, two guys unrelated to the Chartiers who know about the case, they have this underwater drone and they know about the case and they're looking into it and they're like, geez, if we could thoroughly search that section of the Concord River, that might help something. And believe it or not, guys, they find the car. It's kind of a gradual process. They find a car and then they scuba dive down and say, yeah, it's a Dodge Dart with a cloth top. And I think at that point, they turn it over to the state police. And it is confirmed at that point to be Judy's car, her Dodge Dart. And at this point, they don't say anything else. So what I thought was happening in this case was the police had a suspect and that suspect had begun to talk. I'm like, geez, that's got to be inside information. Man, my hopes were dashed. But a few days later, they report finding the body of Judy Chartier, and they say it was nearby. So I don't know if it was in the car. Was it in the brush where the car went in? Because you would have had to drive this car, put a brick on the gas pedal, and put it into gear so it goes into the water. So it would have had to have been driven in there. So I don't know if the body was found near like the launch site or within the car itself, the police aren't saying. But in water, it washes away a lot of evidence, but they did a dental records analysis and they did confirm it to be Judy Chartier. And there was an ID in the car or on the body. Again, cops are super tight-lipped over it. And does it make them look bad that the police didn't do this themselves, just these two private citizens did it? Yeah, it does a little. It does a little because the police just never moved this case forward whatsoever. I'm sorry. So when it became known that these two guys with the underwater drone found it rather than the police, I knew right then that they had no suspect that was talking. So... Although you have the car, which it could have some evidence in it, a body that's been in the water for almost 40 years, man, can you get a cause of death out of it? Maybe, but anything else, I'm not entirely sure. So I don't know if this was the break that's going to solve this case, guys. I just don't know. So I think Roger Balcom, Judy's boyfriend, has been cleared. He's been nothing but helpful with the police. I mean, does that mean taking a lie detector? Probably. It seems as though the cops have written him off as a suspect. And I believe he spoke directly to Bob Ward, but regardless, he is in that video that I'm mentioning. I'm going to put in the show notes. Take a look at that and listen closely to the wording. Just perplexed by it, really. Also, I came across an article full of information, actually in a low sun. I'll put it in the show notes as well. It said that there may have been a witness to what actually happened to Judy, and it was a woman, 
and she had committed suicide some years before. So I don't know what's going on if the police have more than they're relaying to the public. I just don't know what good it did, guys. Did it do you any good? Because that body was still in the water. Also, Joe Chartier, one of the sons, he came to the house at 7 a.m. and was there for those two lunatics who had knocked on the Chartier's door. He knows one of them is a local sleazebag, he says, and that's his quote, not mine. And the other one was just, like, overly confident. Man, it just seems like this seems to be wasted opportunity with those two people. And then that woman, now she's killed herself, right? So, I don't know. Again, you could do another episode with Bob Ward and say, hey, this is what I think happened with some of these names, right? Because I get it. It's going to be difficult to prove a murder, but it's been 40 years, right? In about 10 years, people are just going to all be dead in this case. I don't get the whole protocol of keeping everything to yourself. Why don't you name those two guys, right? Because maybe an ex-wife will say, yeah, he told me this, A, B, and C. I don't know. So Roger Balcom's moved out of the area, but again, I think they had written him off as a suspect, and they've never named anybody else. And again, I have to ask, has that done this case any good? I don't think it has. I think it's done the opposite. So that's about all I have for you guys. I was hoping for more evidence to come out of the car and the body and all that. And it's good to have those things. But until the cops break out the handcuffs, I don't know how much more information is going to be available. The Chartiers, both mom and dad, have passed away. And they passed away with not knowing what really happened to Judy. I think they deserved better, you know, I just really do. And if there were persons of interest, suspects, say it. What good does it do? It's been 40 years now. Man, that protocol's got to change, guys. I just don't know. I don't know what more to say on it. It's just common sense at this point. It's hard when people don't listen to common sense. You have to scream it, I guess. But I think that's all I have for you on this case. It's a true whodunit, and I think the cops know more than they're releasing, obviously. But I understand they have to hold some things back. But you can throw out a tidbit to stir up some interest in this case. I just don't know why they're not. But I do hope the Chartiers get some peace on this, and I think that's all I have for you at this point. If you need to get a hold of me, my email is barry at bostonconfidential.net. That's all I have for you in this one, guys. I'll get on to the next one, and I'll see you on the flip side, all right? Take care. Take care.